Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. So it's been over 15 years since Short Bus, John Cameron Mitchell's uh, deeply moving and deeply sexually explicit ensemble comedy and drama shocked audiences and shocked all the right people and charmed uh, even more. The actor and playwright, the man behind Hedwig and the Angry Inch, who directed the film adaptation of Hedwig and went on to direct Nicole Kidman to an Oscar nomination at Rabbit Hole and How to Talk to Girls at Parties, who's also been acting in everything from Girls to Shrill, recently touring in the Origin of Love Tour, starring in the excellent musical podcast Anthem, set to play Joe Exotic in Peacock's miniseries. Uh, but once upon a time, he followed up on his first feature with a film that became a cult classic. Short Bus premiered at the 2006 Cannes Film Festival, caused a lot of stir due to its inclusion of non-simulated sex, and it's a film that explores the lives of several uh, emotionally and sometimes socially challenged characters navigating the sad and hilarious New York City in a post-9-11 world and connecting in and around a modern underground salon. It's a film with incredible sexual frankness, incredible love and compassion and empathy, and released independently, so they never had to rate it. And the best part about it is, John Cameron Mitchell did not go on to direct a Marvel movie as soon as he was done. Uh, Oscilloscope got a hold of the original negative. It's now been re-released in 4K, and it is a great pleasure to welcome John Cameron Mitchell to Sirius X. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I, would, Congre- I probably wouldn't say no to a marvel movie now but back then <laughs> i knew that was well in a way that's kind of more now there's no middle movies anymore there's the tiny you know like nomadland and then she'll do you know the eternals it's yeah. like there's nothing in between and i think i i was old enough to, and been around long enough that after hedwig i knew not to just take the next shiny giant thing because i saw a lot of my friends when they had to deal with you know, when there was bigger budgets and bigger stars, there was bigger trouble, mm-hmm. a lot, yeah. a lot less creative control and stupid notes. And, you know, just all the things that that you scream about with Hollywood um, that they pay you a lot of money to ignore. Yes. And next thing you know, that, you're directing a 20 episode Netflix series you don't care about. And suddenly what happened right. to the artist? Exactly. And people do kind of lose their way. Um, you know, some find their ways back and some are paying for their kids college and that's totally understandable i kept my overhead low my i you know i had my abortions no i'm joking um i in effect i i aborted things that would in my life that would uh sap my possible my creative juices you know like i i have a rent stabilized apartment in new york yes. which is a way to subsidize my work i 
I didn't spend a lot of money on things. I spent them on travel and kind of getting to know the world. Um, only now have I bought my first house at 58 because of Joe Exotic. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> wow, he's given us so much now. I, I mean, yeah. I, I was I was uh, in Los Angeles when I first saw the film, when it was first released, and I was one of the lucky people who had seen the original production of Hedwig off-Broadway, and it was a film that stayed with me so deeply. I bought the soundtrack the weekend I saw the film, and it recently... I was thinking, why can't I find this film anywhere? Why has it never been released digitally? It's a handful of just classic movies that one cannot get in our streaming age. It's actually kind because, of a, a strange story, why, why it was so unavailable. Yeah, Think Film, which put out a lot of great movies in the late 90s, early 2000s, including Half Nelson and Spellbound and, and all these great movies. And it, they went under. So... All their catalog went to a holding company, you know, and so for 10 or 50 you know, years, these films are not been available uh, because nobody's bought the uh, the catalog. We managed to winkle our way out. They owed us profits. So we forwent the profits and got the rights back in return. And then Oscilloscope stepped up to say, how about... Um, the full 4k, you know, Blu-ray streaming, you know, they've done a great, they're a great company, you know, and some of the members of the thick film team work there now. So it was kind of great, you know, to get it back out the way we, we wanted. And um, the only place you could find it, you could bit torrent it maybe, but was right. a porn, porn hub. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, uh, and it was only the Spanish dubbed version. Oh my. Well, that's yeah. actually even dirtier if you're in the right mood. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I'm I know I'm sure you've been told this a lot, but the time capsule element of watching the film now, 15 years later, especially if one hasn't seen it in the last decade, uh, I remember very very vividly how in New York after 9/11, for a few years there was this very beautiful, very I think spiritual and compassionate sexual response to all the destruction and suffering and authoritarianism of the Bush-Cheney regime. And I hadn't really counted on reviewing the film and, and having it take me back to that period. I mean, this was right after Bush had used fear of marriage equality to win re-election. And this film came out the year the tide was finally beginning to turn. I, I'm sure yes. you've been asked a lot about it, but did the time capsule element of this surprise you at all? It really did. I mean... In some ways, when we were doing it, we were capturing the last gasp of a certain underground culture there that was starting to fade because of real estate, because of the digital culture was kind of starting to remove brick and mortar places that we would all hang out, you know, and Grindr was, I mean, I kind of predicted Grindr with, yes. with the uh, Yenta app That's that right. I have, <laughs> um, you know, never saw scent but you know there was a sense of <laughs> you know there's a sense of a certain underground new york under particularly queer new york that was just starting to fade and uh i wanted to capture that feeling that i had and the feeling of the blackout in 2003 yes. which i was with many of the cast members at the time and never was there a more beautiful and spiritual night in new york you know everyone was so kind the the cops let you drink in the street and build bonfires in the park. And mm -hmm. it was an alternate New York um, where there was no crime or looting. And it would, people were just happy 
that it wasn't another goddamn bombing. And that feeling of forgiveness, we even forgive Ed Koch, you know, for his failings during the AIDS crisis because of his closetedness as a closeted mayor. Um, the, the film is a, is a forgiving one. All the characters are in extremis. You know, they're all in major crisis. Um, the sex, the world, the sexual world is just where it plays out, but it's not really about the sex. It's just the not sex is a me metaphor for their own uh, problems. You know, a woman can't have an orgasm. What does that have to do with, you know, the male gaze? And what does it have to do with the gay males for that matter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it also, though, watching it now, it made me think that this film is really about, it, it seems like the movie takes place at the exact moment in history when the internet started to make people lonely. That's right. That's right. And a character in it, somewhat inspired by Jonathan Kuwait, who made a great documentary called Tarnation, which he had documented his whole life, which I helped. Yeah. He auditioned for Short Bus is how I met him. Ah. And he has a cameo in the film. But it was the beginning of auto fiction when it came to presenting yourself. And this is pre-social media, pre-iPhone. That's right. But there were blogs, there were vlogs, there were there was Manhunt. You know, there was a few things that be developed into what the smartphone uh, was going to be and, and how much control it had over us. But I just saw the inkling, you know, and I saw internet porn coming up, um, which was exciting at first, but then can get just as formulaic as Hollywood. And you suddenly had a generation who was watching porn for five years before they had sex yeah. and which warped their first experiences, you know, trying to imitate it or, you know, unrealistically kind of interact with someone, you know, it, it became transactional, you know, as a, it became, what are you into? This is what I'm into. You know, let's make the contract now as opposed to the old way, which was, what are we into? You know, yes. <laughs> you know, what are we into? Which is what I learned, you know, like coming of age right before AIDS. Um, it was weirdly lucky because I knew about safe sex when I needed to. But the panic that AIDS and the panic and the injustice that AIDS showed to us, um, AIDS was a, a, a kind of you know, hidden engine for short bus and Hedvig, yes. you know, the rage, yes. the rage of those years, the rage at Bush, you know, um, at Reagan and at Bush senior, you know, yep. these people who ignored uh, the death of people who were not socially acceptable. And some of the panic of that time I see echoed in the COVID era course back then it was gay people saying the government's trying to kill us with aids and now you know the anti-vaxxers are the are the ones doing that today yeah. but yeah. you know apocalypse breeds insanity i i moved to greenwich village as a teenager at the peak of aids activism and i was someone whose neighbors were lou reed and ed koch uh both of whom figure in your work and yes. for me it was amazing how the film really did take us back to that period where we weren't completely out of the woods yet but I find it so fascinating how you went about your casting process. Much has been made of the fact that you wanted explicit sex, you didn't want stars, and that you didn't have an actual shooting script when you put out the online call for submissions. You might lead it. You might lead this film. 
Yes. And I read, you know, Mike's book about his process. Uh, he tends to work with very experienced actors, but he did start. He does start by casting first and then doing improv. And then they come to a consensus about the script. In my case, I opened it up to anyone, the professional actors or otherwise. People sent in tapes of, about themselves. We chose 40 of those people that came to New York and had a, a callback week, you know, that was parties and fun and improv and, uh, you know, watching each other's tapes to see who was attracted to whom because I needed to create couples. Um, it was called the Sex Film Project. I did have a dance party at that time called Short Bus, so that became the title. But um, then I chose nine people. We did improv workshops. We worked off and on for two and a half years before we were financed. Um, a couple of people dropped out, a couple of replacements. Um, but by the time it was ready to go, we, we were ready. And we were very proud of what we made and everybody involved felt great about it. You know, I imagine making it now would be a lot harder. You know, back then the, the panic was more about, you know, you know, more the usual religious right kind of thing. Today, I think the panic would be more maybe from the left, you know, in the wake of, of uh, the necessary me too and consent debate there's a little bit of residual Puritan panic about sex, not about abuse, but about sex in general. Like, i.e., if someone's having it, someone's being exploited. Right. You not know. so much about sex, but a lack of respect in sex. Uh, yes. Exploitation in sex. But, I mean, literally an erotophobia because, because of, I think, of digital culture and also woke culture, fewer and fewer young people are actually having sex. And this is before COVID. You know, Japan, it's plummeted like the young people aren't having sex at all um, before COVID. And it it has to do with the panic of IRL. You know, you can't control a situation. You know, people are behind screens and young people, if they're going to break up with their boyfriend by text, they're going to maybe have sex by sext and actually not even, you know, meet sometimes. And that disturbs me, you know, and, and head and Chopas hopefully is a bit of an antidote. It was a preemptive antidote when we made it, but even more so now I can imagine, you know, we've been doing screenings in LA and young people here just, I can't believe that kind of environment happened. It is so freeing. And I want to, I want that time. I want that. I said, you can make it, you can make it now. Yeah, exactly. And what is amazing is that it's the sort of film where I think people will, come for the titillation and stay for the inspiration. It, you know, the, the sexual explicitness gives way to the fact that the heart is the, the most prominent organ in this film. And I was raised profoundly Catholic. I know you were. My mom was an ex-nun. Yeah. My father was an ex-Franciscan. And I find wow. the film to be profoundly spiritual because it is all about compassion for the least of these. The, the explicit penetrative sex, <laughs> that's there to freak out the right people. But it's just the themes of the story and the characters pain and their, their arcs are, I think even more better served because you actually respect the audience enough to show them the sex that happens. I get so pissed off. Show them the full story. Yeah. Yeah. Or cut to the, you know, candle or cut to the morning. And it's, it's as if the sex is not worthy of discussion. There's something wrong with it. It's, and, but of course in your first, 
you know, when you're beginning a relationship, the first time you have sex is very much a part of that story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it is the first time you have sex with anyone is shocking and revealing. So that's why we have a sexual overture at the beginning of the film to kind of surprise, acclimatize the audience to the language of sex. Some of phrases we know about, everybody knows some phrases of what sex means. And we kind of break the hymen in, in a way at the beginning. And then as the film goes along, the sex becomes less and less explicit and less and less even present, which is, you know, kind of same as a relationship, right? By the end of it, your sex is not the first thing you're thinking about, but you're thinking about deeper stuff and you're thinking about life and death ultimately for these characters by the end and a realignment of, of a long-term relationship, uh, dissolution of another, you know, reminding us that we all get it in the end. So let's, let's be kind, you know, let's be kind to ourselves. Let's find a way to feel less alone. The sex is neither here nor there, but it's a metaphor for connecting to yourself and to another person in a respectful and loving way. It's not always that case, but in our case, short bus is a sanctuary, you know, and the film is a sanctuary. And done in a style that, that, you know, seems to marry the best of Mike Lee and Robert Altman. I, I know that when you were casting, you initially had to filter out a lot of just rank exhibitionists who wanted to yeah. show off for a camera. Once you had your ensemble actors, all of whom's all their performances have aged lovely. It, it's fascinating to me to wonder the rehearsal process and figuring out the storyline. What were the practicalities involved in actually filming the sex scenes? I'm sure some actors had different levels of comfort than others. You know, it was a very different thing. Um, We found that because it's not a usual thing to have sex in a film that we would seek out, first of all, people who were open to the idea. And that was often non-professionals. Even SAG was panicked. You know, imagine they're nudity writers, but then, they're, you know, what about the fist fucking writer? You know, they didn't know what to do. We had we had SAG actors and non non actors um, or non-professional actors. And we found that the best way to work with them was to they help create the characters, you know, so. They did a lot of improv. A lot of elements of their lives ended up in the film exaggerated. You know, Sukhyan did have problems accessing an orgasm when she was young. We said, let's exaggerate that to someone who's never had an orgasm, but is a sex therapist. So the the pressure is big. Paul and PJ play James and Jamie, the gay couple, and they were a couple. So they could bring some of their dynamic into it safely, you know, Everyone, there was no intimacy counselors, but everyone felt safe, respected, and often have said that it's their best creative experience. I was just doing Joe Exotic and, you know, a scene with two, two young guys in, who are my husbands. And it's funny, the negotiation about, you know, side ass, you know, and I was just laughing because I'm like, what about the negotiation about kind of lingus that I had and or whatever, <laughs> it's like, imagine the intimacy counselor's head exploding. There had to be a squad of people in the orgy room. Um, I was even dared by the actors to join the orgy room because like, if we're doing it, you got to do it. So I, I do have a couple shots in there and I do a dine out yes. uh, at, yeah. at the restaurant that I hadn't visited before. Uh, Eating at the I, I guess. Yes. I performed my first 
um, I committed cunnilingus. I didn't just perform it. <laughs> you never forget your first time, especially when no. it's a, in a movie like this. I, yes, I my mom should have been delighted, but she wasn't. <laughs> the national anthem scene, which people will have to see the movie to understand, is actually, I think, more shocking now than it was then. It feels like the sharpest and most joyful rebuke of the Bush era, but it's not uh, watching it. It's not that the sex is political. It's that it's all here. No. Yes. For, for, for queer people or Catholic people who were raised with shame over these issues. Yeah. And you know what they say about Catholic girls and Mormon boys, you know, when they let go, they really let go. And I have, you know, I did. Yeah. But there is and not to say that my first time in these uh, sex group sex rooms weren't kind of shocking to me, too. You know, I was amazed and group uh, group sex is not really my thing, but I was cheered by it. You know, I was I was thrilled by these salons that I would go to. There was one called Cine Salon where 16 millimeter films would play. There was vegetarian food. And then there was uh, not mandatory, but there was often group sex later on. And I was like, wow, all of these things are equated as equally important yes. to our lives. And I love that. That brings me to the Ed Koch beat, because I think that the character of Ed Koch, his name is never said, but there's this old man who's the former mayor of New York who didn't do enough during the AIDS crisis and was in the closet all those years. And he's just there. He really only gets one scene. But to me, it's it, it's sort of a linchpin of what the whole film's about, because you manage to both call him out for his inaction while also treating him with incredible compassion. And I thought that's the whole theme of the movie, acceptance and forgiveness for one's failures and defects. That might be my favorite scene is when Ed Koch talks, you know, is kind of coming on to the young man by teaching him about what New York is. It's the place where people come to get fucked, but it's also the, the place where people come to be forgiven. You know, people come from a place where they were denigrated or not appreciated and told there was something wrong with them. So they do go to, the, you know, especially queer people go to these big cities and they have, they get fucked, but Underneath it, they're kind of thinking about figuring out their what's wrong with them, you know, and that's the forgiven part. And ultimately, mostly they realize they don't need to be forgiven. They just need to look at themselves with some compassion. Um, it was the, the people who denigrated them that were wrong. Mm. But in Koch's case, he obviously has these sins on his soul um, that he feels, you know, he's like, we didn't know anything then. I don't know anything now. And I, I, I did my best. And I, it was not true just because I was in the closet that I failed in my management of AIDS or, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it, it's obvious that it, that it did, but we also have this young man forgiving him. Yes. You know, he kisses him and it's, it's a moment of forgiveness, but then, he sees the, the couple and they go off together and, the, and Ed Koch is left alone. Yeah. And ultimately, his, what he d defines as his impermeability has left him isolated. But that scene is where I thought, well, there's still the nice Catholic boy who understands forgiveness inside this filmmaker. Did, did Koch ever see the film that you know of or know about the scene? I, I'm sure he did because he was actually doing reviews for a village paper for, for films. Ah, there you go. So right. I don't think, right. yeah, I don't think he reviewed it, but he, um, went to a he must've seen it and he, I'm surely, I'm sure he heard of it. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious about, um, 
what you know i'd love to find out what actually happened mm. you know when he saw it and if it if it if he was like that's not me and fuck them i didn't do anything <laughs> wrong or if it was actually a sense of maybe there was an objection you know an understanding that his closetedness led to lost lives yeah uh, not to the same level as Reagan, who never said the name of the disease till 20,000 people had died. But, you know, uh, exactly. And, and I have one last question for you. Um, I, I'm a big fan of your Lou Reed covers EP. Oh, uh, thanks. I was like, oh, someone else loves the Ecstasy album. I loved it. And, and honestly, yes. I, would see, I would see Lou and Koch almost every day on the streets of Greenwich Village. And I talked to them both more times than I can count. Watching the film, I realized, you know, in the case of the S&M dominatrix who can't connect to people, Severin, is that name a reference to the Velvet Underground's Venus and Furs? Well, yes, and that name comes from the book by Zachar Masok. Um, yes, his name led you know to the term masochism, and Severin was the masochist. Uh, the, it's a male name, Severin. You know, Severine is a female name, which I believe is the name of the masochist in that Catherine Deneuve plays in Belle de Jour also, but we kind of reversed it. We sort of made the dominatrix have the masochist name. Yes. And uh, she's clearly in control of her life, but, the, you know, also crumbling, you know, under the pressure of, uh, of being in control and, and finances. And just, you know, she says her longest relationship was with this trust fund Muppet John that she, you know, that pays her to whip, whip him. Right. <laughs> the film is beautiful. I loved it more than ever. And I can't wait now to go see it again on the big screen. Everyone now is your chance. If you did not get to see short bus in your local multiplex back in 2006, you can finally see it uh, streaming as a download. A purchase is highly recommended. It is a film you'll want to watch many, many times. I can't wait to get the soundtrack again. John Cameron Mitchell, I cannot wait to see you uh, bring your humanity to Joe Exotic. And thank you so much for joining us. On thank you, John, for your articulateness and sensitivity. I appreciate it. Hey, longtime fan, first time suck up. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Right. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It is such a pleasure to welcome one of the most universally beloved uh, genre actors in the business to actors in the business. 
Alan Tudyk is a wildly talented gentleman with a very varied career. Uh, he can go from villain to superhero, sometimes in the same script, human to robot. Um, and of course, a lot of you know him for his uh, role as Wash in Firefly or 310 to Yuma or A Knight's Tale or Transformers or 42 or The Maze Runner or his excellent voice work in uh, Wreck-It Ralph, uh, in uh, Zootopia, in uh, Moana as the rooster. And of course, his work as a, uh, an android in iRobot and, of course, as K2SO in Rogue One. Alan Tudyk has the kind of career that most working actors dream of, and he invests fully in each role, uh, finding layers and layers that make everything he does so worth watching, especially his series Resident Alien on Sci-Fi, where he plays uh, an alien who was sent here to plot the extinction of all humanity, but crash-landed, now has to pass for one of us, and wouldn't you know it... His attitude on humans begins to change. Uh, as the second season begins on sci-fi, it is a great pleasure to welcome Alan Tudyk to SiriusXM. Hello. Thank you so much, John. That was the nicest intro. Thank my mother did one better, but that. But other than that, yours is right. Right. Well, under. but it it's 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 keenly felt because in many ways I think that this is the best character you've had. I, I mean, you get to do everything in this role: incredible physical work, incredible poignancy, in terrific comedy. It, it sort of seems like this is a character that allows you to just uh, push yourself in all new directions all the time. Yes, uh, Harry is. Um, it's really theatrical uh, of a performance, really when I think about it, as far as the challenges that it has, you know, he's an alien who crash landed on earth, but he wasn't planning to come here. Uh, he was just going to kill everyone. He'll just do the, the drive and drop, drop a bomb. Uh, <laughs> and so he's doing the drive and drop and then gets hit by lightning and ends up accidentally having to encounter human beings. And he takes over this human body, which looks like me, and, which is fortunate for me. Uh, that's how I got the role. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I feel bad for all the other. Act. We're going to go with a guy who looks like Alan Tudyk with this role. But yeah, um, although it's got to yeah. be amazing. Uh, talk about rewarding in the pilot. Essentially, you get to kill yourself yeah. in battle. I know. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's like a, it's it was my therapist was very happy. But <laughs> imagine you're hitting your own ego and you're. <laughs> <laughs> the other self is destroying the earlier self. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I kill myself. <laughs> I throw myself in a lake. And I die. <laughs> that other part of me dies. And then later on in the season, I have a, get to have a conversation with myself, but it's the dead, rotting corpse of myself. Exactly. Because the, yeah, the <laughs> alien uh, decides he, he's feeling lost. His wife leaves him. And um, his, which was a bad, that he had, did, had no need to have a wife. Um, mm. the wife belonged to the guy whose body he took over and one day shows up and she's there. She's like, I'm your wife. And he has to try to trick her. But, uh, he says, well, humans, whenever they get upset, they drink liquor and eat pills. So he just downs a bunch of liquor and chews up a bunch, <laughs> chews up a bunch of pills and has a, he has this whole pass out hallucination where he has a, a conversation with himself. Yes. And then he kills himself again. He, he stabs himself in the neck. That's very hard. <laughs> no, it's sort of like Starman, but with a homicidal id uh, in, in many ways. <laughs> and when the series starts out, we think, okay, will this be the anti-Starman? Because he's come down here and assumed a, a human form to wipe out the human race. But what is so consistently wonderful about the show and what sets it apart from so many others is that there's always 
even when he's plotting to destroy the human race, uh, a level of vulnerability to this character. Now, I know he only learned he had emotions in the first season, but how important is it to you in all these scenes, be it, be it menacing, be it comedic, to keep the vulnerability there? Yes. I, I, it's important. I mean, that's... You know, we're so... You know, actors are emotional beings. You know, we're, that's what we peddle in. It's funny. We get to... We trade in emotions. And, uh, and that's, this, this, this is such a great role in that he gets to be caught off guard by his emotions because he'd never had them before. He didn't want them. Um, they, uh, yeah, they, they can, they come at the worst times. Uh, he doesn't have to like them, but he does acknowledge them. You know, it's, uh, it made me realize that even as humans, we have moments where we don't know about our feelings. You know, that moment where you go, wait a minute, I'm angry. Why am I angry? (laughs) When did I get angry? Oh, I got it. I'm angry at you because of that thing you said that you can arrive at a destination or you arrive at a feeling and have to backtrack to figure out where did, where did I pick this up? And, and definitely Harry has that since it's, there are emotions that he's not accustomed yes. to and can't identify very easily. That, that's how we know his character is male, I think. But yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> but yeah, his, I want pizza, food, <laughs> anger. And he, yeah, he, so the sex is kind of, it's a strange thing for him. It's not really shape of water so much. It's, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it's a shape of. I don't want to describe it. <laughs> it's, it's not from this earth. Well, I mean, I mean, that's that's, again, what's so delightful about the character is how, yes, it's a show about an alien, but it's really, of course, a show about an alien learning to be human, which makes it a show about humanity. And and it comes out in the most unexpectedly lovely ways because it is a very funny show. I mean, on the pilot episode, for example, I mean, you learn to speak human tongue by spending four months repeatedly watching Law and Order reruns. And I remember watching that first episode and thinking, my God, the physical work must have been so fun for you to explore in this character. Because essentially yes. he's, like a, he's like a baby who's learning to walk around in an adult body. Yes. I, I've, I've had so much fun. I, did a, uh, I went to school in New York, and we had clown class. Yeah. And I, man, I love me some clowns. Like the real clowns. The clowning that I learned came from the school of Lecoq School of Clowning out of... Uh, France. And it was described to me as clowns are adults or however old you are. If you were never told no, that you grew up and nobody ever said no. So you just keep saying yes to everything you do and you feel everything outwardly. Every there's, there's, there's no, um, uh, you're not hiding. And, yeah. and before we came back oh, for the first season, cause we, there was a big long break between doing the pilot and then doing the uh, first season. I actually, my, I contacted my clown teacher from school. He was, I went to Juilliard, but he went to, now he teaches at Yale. And he was like, you know what? I happen to be coming into LA to do a clown class for, it's an intensive. And it was me and a bunch of 20 year olds like, <laughs> for three days, these eight hour days of just rolling around, making noises. It's, it's the fun, it's the most fun work. It's the, it's, it, but it's like child, you get in touch with your child, the childlike wonder of things and 
and in, in that way, definitely Harry, it's, it's such a great gift to be able to, to embody that for most of the year now. Watching, watching him uh, get drunk for the first time, make love for the first time. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that you're having a blast. I, I'm so uh, preoccupied with, with questions about the physicality that you bring to the role. I mean, do you have a lot of rehearsal? Do you get to, to play with the physicality on set or for a role that's this inventive? Do you do most of your homework in advance and show up? I'm, I was very curious how much, if any, rehearsal you guys have time to have on set. Yeah, we don't get much, if any. It's so funny, film work and, and, and television work is this, you know, it's just so immediate. But like yeah, there's a there's one, there's a there's a quick montage. Harry's first getting used to his body and he walks around and he eats some chicken and can't sit down right. And uh, I remember that day was the end of a day. We, ah, man, we must've had 20 minutes. And they said, okay, we can only film this direction. Here's the table. <laughs> We're going to put the chicken on the table over here. So just, if you can shoot there and the costume was like, oh, we didn't plan for this. Like, well, what if I take off my pants? That's suddenly a different costume. So I just <laughs> took off my pants and just walked around, tried to sit down, fell down, tried to sit down a different way, fell, fell down, and then ate the chicken bizarrely. And then that was after we did it. And they're like, we got to call the day. That's what we had. And so it, it can be pretty, pretty tight as far as time goes, but it's a lot of fun. It's just, you just have to jump yeah. in. Yeah. At the end of the first season, not giving away too much to those who are trying to catch up. In fact, if you're listening on demand, pause now, go watch season one, then come back. But at the end of the first season, uh, you have left Earth and then discovered that uh, young Max has been a stowaway on your ship, which will force you to return. It's a great device to bring us back to season two. I'm curious. I I've really been dying to know how involved are you? with mapping out the character arcs are, are you told the full season arc from the get-go i am and this season has been a little tricky because we got we were 10 episodes last season and then this season is 16 and so it's, it's sort of shifted because chris uh, sheridan who created the whole series he had an arc that was a 10 episode arc and then they're like congratulations <laughs> he's like oh no <laughs> thank you oh no and so there's a it's it's shifted it's been shifting and i've i've been involved a little bit more this season i get the scripts early and uh really get to work on them on that level uh i, I don't right. i don't get to say no I, I think what we should do you know this season is this that's the season. i get the arc and then it's in how it's being executed in the script that Chris is, is a, is, is a true collaborator with me and, and with everyone in the, in yes. the series. He is, it's such an open door policy. It's a bit bizarre. I don't think it's healthy. He got to close your door. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> he's really he's very generous that way. But do, do you pitch, I mean, do you pitch story arcs or episode arcs? I pitch, like not not so much that, but if the story gets stuck in a place, like if it's, it's like okay, so let me go here, but then there's a problem here, and this happens, I'll be like, okay, this right. problem, I have three pitches on that problem. Here's a way to do it. Here's a way to do it. Here's a way to do it. And like once or twice, I've gotten a scene, and I'll go, I have a better 
comic device through it. And it's been great. I mean, I got, I, it does, I like writing a lot and uh, yeah. it really scratches that itch for me. I mean, what, what I love is that it is truly serialized drama and it's never going to be the kind of show where you'll just have another day in Mayberry with the secret alien that has nothing to do with the rest of the episodes. It, it's not a standalone show and the stories keep evolving and not just of yours, but of, of the entire cast. It's really refreshing to see other characters not treated as, as subordinate window dressing, but actually have fully realized characters. I'm curious, were there any scenes or, or episodes in the first season or the, the new season that 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 you found particularly challenging either either creatively or physically or even emotionally wow yes i'm sure there were there must have been you know the the sex <laughs> that when when he has sex uh I, I i really like how it turned out i'm very uncomfortable in sex scenes it's such a weird yeah. part of the job yeah to be to go to work with and another person be like, okay, so now we're going to kiss. Now we're going to, yeah, okay, so we're going to make out. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, we're going to, and now there's another person. There's an intimacy coordinator person that's oh, there. yeah. To, to uh-huh. make sure. And it's there. It's good. This is my first time I've ever used, I don't do a lot of sex, sex scenes <laughs> in my career. And it's, to play such a bizarre character, it's good that it's him that's doing it. Because I, there is a level of protection for her as well. Oh, of course. it's not even in the, in, the, in the episode. It was originally conceived as they're having sex and then they push into the mirror of the bedroom where you always see in, every, in the reflection, you see Harry as the alien. It's a yes. device to, to remind you who he is. And then it pushed into the mirror and you see then you become part of that world and you see him having sex as the alien. So you get a sense of what's happening there. So we actually shot that in alien in a full alien makeup. So there was the protection of foam, which was a little thing, but it was, it was just so bizarre. I'm glad it was, it was, it was a little stressful, but I'm very glad that to do any kind of nude scenes or any kind of sex scenes where the final outcome is supposed to be funny. You're supposed to look at it and laugh. If I ever had to do one, where you're supposed to go, oh, yeah, that was, wow, that seemed like they were really doing it. <laughs> I don't think I do. I think I'm now actually in an age range where you wouldn't even want to get near there. But yeah, mm, that is mm. a tricky, tricky part of the job. The first time I ever I ever had a sex scene on camera was for an independent film, and it was with me and my partner was Sandra Bernhard who did not require an onset intimacy coordinator whatsoever. I needed someone for, to make sure I was going to be okay. And, and then I took a gig at Sirius XM and now I see her every day. And it's like this 20 year old thing we did that we don't talk about too much, but yes, you, wow. make, it much more, you make it look much more dignified than I did. LB, <laughs> uh, the actress LB, who I was working with is very gentle. She was, <laughs> she was, she was kind. She took pity on me. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back. I'd love to ask you about a couple of other roles and bits of notoriety, yeah. because that's what you do. I know you, you come to talk about your new project and people want to talk about Firefly. But I, I, I have to ask you about uh, your wonderful wife, um, Ms. Barton, who is uh, oh. the, great, the great creative mind behind the wonderful choreography of the opening number that people get to watch on HBO Max's new series, The Peacemaker, with John Cena, uh, just because it's the first... I think it's the first uh, superhero series to open with a choreographed dance number, and it's quite elaborate and impressive. And I'm sure you've been, you've been asked about it a lot. Apparently, she made you help her draft out parts of the choreography and parts of the physicality. And I, 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 now I want to see you in it. What was that experience like? And do you often help her uh, creatively that way? Oh, I'm so proud of her in this thing it's so cool it's so it's very delightful. funny and i, I love right i love the series i mean i'm all of it james gunn is a great guy uh yeah. i i i it's neat that she got the job and he didn't know and then knew after because we don't we don't hang but we know each other and we knew each other a long time <laughs> we knew each other a long time ago right uh but yeah she she got the job he does a lot of like the second guardians of the galaxy, that whole big fight that had dancing in it. That's right. was its own form of dance. And then he had that other super supers or something. It was a movie. It was a low budget super movie uh, that had an animated dance opening. So this was like the natural progression for him. And he wanted something that it was quirky. And I forget all the words that he used. There were a few dancers who pitched, and uh, he liked hers. And in the beginning, they were like, you know what? We're kind of, we, this person just did this big project and this person just did this project. You sure don't want those choreographers? He said, let's look at their pitches. And it was obvious who he wanted and it was Carissa. And so she got to work and I was John Cena in the dances. And she was right here in our living room, right over there. I was learning all the dances and then we got a dance studio. You know, she's very generous to say that was your idea or I got this move from you. I don't know. I just felt like I was drowning and <laughs> just doing my best to stay afloat. You know, wherever she got her cues for new moves and things, I, I'm not quite sure. I don't remember, but... <laughs> Uh, she did a fantastic job. What was really cool was, so we did the dance several times and there was other dancers, it was just me and then dancers yeah. because the cast was shooting the show and it had two months to put this thing together and we'd throw and do a thing together. We'd do it. She'd film it, send it to James. James would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yes, yes. No, no. Yes. Do a reimagining of this part, that part, this part, this part, see what's working, what's not. But it would be like me and the dancers hanging out. Like just, <laughs> but they're like all actually trained dancers. Yeah. And Carissa's a dancer. I have huge respect for dancers. I think that of careers to devote yourself to, it's one of the most 
don't know. You have to have such a such a love for it. There's not a lot of money in it. You have to devote yeah, so true. much of your time and yeah. your body. And it just I, they're just true artists to me. And to get to Absolutely. just hang on the there was when I went to when I'm to Juilliard, you would get off the elevator and you would go down this hallway and you turned left. That's where the drama. So you look that way, you see some drama people milling around. If you look right, see all these exotic dancers with yeah. their legs up against the wall, sweaty and angry. Yeah. Like oh. cigarettes. yeah. That I was hanging with that crew. That was lots uh, of lots of Juilliard dancers broke my heart as an NYU kid downtown. Absolutely. Oh. But I, I just I love it because it could have been sketchy, it could have been a goof, but it's really committed. The cast commits, and it's a really well done dance number that is not done for any kitschy value. It's it's just so refreshing, and I love that you played a role in a in that physicality. I, I do have to tell you, uh, I live with a, a nine year old child. And recently we decided it was time to uh, let him watch 42 because he has books about Jackie Robinson. And so we wanted him to see Harrison Ford eating scenery uh, as, as, uh, as Branch Rickey. And of course, uh, you terrorized my child and we had to tell him, no, no, that's K2SO from Rogue One to, to talk him down. But um, I'm, I, I don't I don't know if it's an appropriate question to ask, but. To play a villain like that, I mean, such as Ben Chapman is an antagonist. Uh, was that fun for you on some level to go to such a dark place and to have to play um, one of Jackie Robinson's persecutors as a fully fleshed human? Brian Helgeland uh, wrote and directed that, and he wanted me for that role. Uh, he actually did a Knight's Tale years before yeah. is how I met Brian, and he wanted me for that role. And the producers were like, I'm sorry, I don't get it. This guy kind of does, this guy does comedies a lot of the time. Uh, we want somebody who's a true, true villain looking guy where you look at him, you're like, GJ, watch it. <laughs> that guy's yeah. going to steal something. And uh, they wouldn't give me the role. Um, Brian was like, called me. He's like, man, I, I don't know what to tell you. I can't fight this fight any harder. Um, and if I fight it any harder, I, I'm going to lose battles down the road. Like, don't sweat it. I went to New York and actually did a little clown show. I did a clown play at La Mama Theater. Uh, down near NYU. And uh, I got a call while I was doing it. And the person that they had decided was going to be the guy um, took a different job and said, no, I'm going to take this one instead. So he said, I got you're coming. And he wanted me because he said, people like that who do that, who are so racist, find themselves, they, they consider themselves funny. Yeah. And they can, they can be funny. They can be kind of funny guys. They're doing sadistic. it for their friends half the time. They're doing it for their friends half the time. Yeah. That sort of sadistic, fucked up, screwed up, you know, personality. But uh, so that's what he wanted. And I didn't enjoy it. I, I really didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I had a problem saying the words, being an emotional person. When I would say those, that it, just you're just beginning with the n-word you're like yeah. just again and again and again and again and all the different variations of, oh, of yeah. just insults racial insults i would cr I, tears would just start coming down my face and i couldn't uh, it was just like this reflex yeah and i would i remembered that my buddy showed me some mma fighting it was before mma was big M mma in a backyard and these two guys squared off and one guy didn't really want to do it and this guy beat him up and it made me feel terrible for days 
And I was like, I remember feeling hard, like a hard knot in my stomach. I was like, let me find some of those videos. So I watched people fighting. I watched injustice happening. I watched people beating up people in the streets. And after it didn't hurt anymore, I could say whatever I wanted to and I wouldn't cry. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? Wow. <laughs> so I didn't enjoy it. I, no. Yeah. Uh, weird thing. It was a weird thing. Like I had to get like just a, enough hate, <laughs> like accustomed to just injustice and hate. I, I guess that's why I, I, I was so fascinated about the construction of the character because you were perfect for it. Your, your clean cut, uh, wholesome, good looks, I think had a lot more power than if he'd been an evil mustachioed villain character. And, and uh, it's it just my compliments on, on how, you know, like Ray Fine and Schindler's List, you, you can't play it as evil. You've got to play it as a person who's doing the right thing, who believes he's doing the right thing when he's committing evil. And it's just such a beautiful performance. I know that we're about to lose you and you're very busy and uh, and I'm very grateful for it. I do want to thank you for redeeming Twitter and being one of the reasons why I won't quit. And and thank you for being an artist who, uh, who doesn't hold back about politics. It really, really, uh, you know, I, I admire so much when folks achieve the level of capital you have and and use it to draw attention to injustice and use it to to draw attention to who's fighting for uh for the least of us so i thank you for being one yeah, of the free donziger man free donziger what the hell <laughs> if you don't know anything about donziger d-o-n don z-i-g-e-r yes and thank you man thank you you of course i wish i had the ability to put words together the way you do and to just man just you, you, the, I think one of the hardest things these days, there's just so much going on and it has been this way. It feels like it's been this way since 2000, that there's just been a thing after a thing, after a thing, after a thing that you can't focus. You don't know where to focus. You have a, a great ability to, to put it into sharp focus, what the hypocrisy is and what, <laughs> what two, what, what two things we're, you know, it, we're weighing in a moment and to show that they're, it's usually, not at all a choice that it's obvious what we should be doing. And uh, sadly, we seem to be moving in a bad direction a lot of the time, socially, politically, uh, with health. <laughs> <laughs> but again, but, but, but we stick around because of the good people. And, and again, for me, I just want to just thank you for being an artist who uses your fame to, uh, to actually make a difference and call out bullshit. So thank you for that. You know what I'm talking about. Thanks, man. And, and thank you for all the great roles. And I didn't ask the obnoxious question about you as K2SO on Andor because I know what you're going to say. So uh, thank you. I, I hope to get you in person in our studio when we have a studio again and go even deeper on craft. In the meantime, everyone needs to do yourself a favor and catch season two of Resident Alien on Sci-Fi. And if you haven't seen season one, this is the kind of show you can watch with anyone in your life. And it is delightful for all people. And that's very rare to say for such a smart show. Alan Tudyk, thank you so much for joining us on Sirius XM. Thanks, John. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. Tell me everything with John Fugelsang on Sirius XM Progress 127. It is a great pleasure to welcome to uh, our show two of the most influential gentlemen in the last few decades of recorded music. Um, I, I want to use the expression, the Tears for Fears comeback album, but I can't because that distinction belongs to 2004's Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, which is excellent. But now, 17 years later, 
Roland Arzabal and Kurt Smith have come back together again for The Tipping Point, which is just a stunning record from the acoustic guitar songs to the ferocious synthesizers. The harmonies are there. It's about love and loss and growth and politics and joy and healing. And like the best of Tears for Fears, this record is lyrical. It is melodic. It is fearlessly in touch with human emotions. And it rocks like a motherfucker. Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith, welcome to Sirius XM. Can we use that as our introduction? How can we follow that? How can we, I mean, our, our words will just be a jumble of nonsense after that. We're going to take that whole segment right there and just use it as an opening for the live act. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm, I'm, going to get, I'm going to get a tattoo of those words. I on my you, back. I, I told you John was articulate. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, obsequious and over the top as that may be, <laughs> I, I'm sure you're used to this. I'm sure you used to... No, for, for men who grew up as young teens in the 1980s and 90s, who have a special uh, attachment and connection to your music that's on the right side of creepy, but <laughs> you were the you were among the only artists of that whole era, I think, that were fearlessly, as men in touch with emotions. I mean, I know it's, it, it relates to the very name of the band, but yeah. to have this record back and to have it just have all the ingredients that always made the music not just great as a radio hit, but what made it resonate with fans. It's mm. just such an honor to thank you for it. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not anything we're, we consciously do, I don't think. I mean, it's just who we are. I think it's easier now um, you know, as you said, back when we started, it probably wasn't done as much. I don't think it was as acceptable to be a male and be in touch with your emotions than it is now. Obviously, now it, it seems to be more acceptable, which which makes our life a little easier. I'm not even sure if it is more acceptable now, but we'll 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 get to that. I I, I want to um thank you both and ask before we even begin, how are you? How are your families? How have you been managing during this very strange and and menacing and peculiar time? Oh, you know, I mean, I live in a, a small village in, in the West Country of England, and uh, we didn't really see much of that stuff other than the uh, um, restrictions. Um, there was there were no cases of COVID where I was, and yet we're still under the same, you know, we'd have to live like people in London, right. if you know what I mean. So oh, yeah. I haven't, I've been around the world, I've been traveling, I was in New York in February 2020 when it was all kicking off. Um, I haven't, no, it hasn't touched me and uh, I don't know anyone who's passed because of it. I don't know anyone who's been hospitalized. I'm not making light of it, but that's, there is yeah. sometimes, uh, there's sometimes a discrepancy between your own personal experience of things and the narrative that's being played out all the time, which is just about to change, by the way. That's why I always ask, because it has affected everyone <laughs> in such different ways. Yeah, no, will, it definitely I, affects, it affects everyone in very, yeah. in very different ways. I mean, for me, it, you know, it didn't really affect my life, particularly because my life is spent at home anyway. But um, I, I felt bad, I felt bad for the younger generation. Yeah, Obviously, you know, for me with my children, you know, I had a, a senior at high school who missed her graduation, you know, mm. because, you know, there was no school. She yeah. was just in, in virtual and, and, you know, missed half of the first year of her college experience because, um, again, they were doing things remotely for half of the year and the other half of the year they were there. It was only half the college that were there and they had right. to be distanced. And so it's, I think it's the those sort of life-forming experiences mm -hmm. that, you know, of graduation, of high school years, of college years, 
that I feel bad. I feel bad for my kids more than anything else. But me being older and, and as I said, more of a homebody anyway, didn't affect me that much. I'm just thrilled that this record is out. It feels like the pandemic is done listening to this album. I mean, we've seen <laughs> we've seen so many artists that we love try to put out an album that's relevant to a current singles market or, or to just yeah. try to capture a sound that was relevant in a market in a previous decade. This record sounds like real authentic craftsmanship and songwriting yeah. and, and joy. I'm sure it was challenging, but was it fun for you to produce this one? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't easy because we were focused on, when we began the album, we were focused on one thing and one thing alone, which is a bit crazy, but it was the um, just the hit single. And that was the only, it seemed to be the only philosophical thrust, yeah. if you see what I'm saying. And um, such is life. Life comes along and sometimes knocks you over the head and um, things are turned upside down. And through that process, you start again, once connecting once again to your inner life, connecting to all the dark and horrible things that have been going on. And slowly over the years, what with, um, you know, the COVID situation and, you know, as as Kurt says, the, the Me Too movement, the BLM movement, we found ourselves, you know, we had songs which seemed to be somehow appropriate to all that stuff. And um, that was the, you know, the environment in, in, in which we made this record. I'm curious, is there usually a moment when either of you feel it's the right time to return to this collaboration or have circumstances yeah. just generally Absolutely. brought you back together? No, we, we kind of knew that when Saturn was at 28 degrees Capricorn, uh, that, that everything was going to come superbly together, which it did. Roland knew when is, yes. um, when that when that happened. I mean, I think for us musically, when we sat down at the beginning of 2020 and we came up just and we sat just the two of us with two acoustic guitars in my house in Los Angeles um, and came up with the song No Small Thing, which is the first track on the album. Um, that was the point where we both, I think, realised that, yeah, this is what we need to do. And from there it became really easy you know obviously because of the pandemic we couldn't really be together recording at that point in time around they've gone back to england so we had to go through the struggles of getting him back into the country uh, but come september he came back we've been doing things sort of by email up until then um so we started finishing the album at the beginning of september and we were done by christmas so it, it really wasn't an arduous process once we knew what we were doing I've read a lot about how the label tried to match you guys up with different hit makers uh, mm. of, of varying quality, of course, um, and that uh, it just seems so terrific that you finally decided, no, you wanted to make the record that was in your hearts to make, because listening to it, it it feels to me like a it's a sequel to The Hurting in many ways. Yeah. It feels like a direct so. corollary to the themes of your first record. And of course, Roland, everyone knows that you began writing some of these songs during your wife Caroline's illness before her, yeah. her, her loss. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to ask you a personal question about, about personal questions. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I know you were married for 36 years and, and her death informs this record, mm-hmm. but I got to say, I'm fascinated by the grace you both show on these media tours when you're asked about your wife's loss again and again and again. And I, well, I, I guess, it, you know, 
please. Sorry, for me, for me, it's like, um, you know, if you've never really experienced that kind of thing. And I think you were talking about the hurting. So, yeah. for instance, when, when we made that record, um, uh, you know, inspired by the writings of Arthur Yanov um, and his primal screen, primal theory, it was all so perfect for us because we could, um, through those theories and, and that question, like blame our parents for everything. So that that was wonderful. So we could, you know, we could we could talk about how traumatic childhood was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, of course, you know, in life, um, trauma can happen at any time. You don't have to be a vulnerable child. You, know, you don't have to be in the birth canal to to suffer trauma. So the the whole thing with going through uh, what I went through. You are suddenly, it's a jolt to the system to say the least, okay? And I think what it does is it opens you up or opened me up in a way that I hadn't been open since um, writing The Hurting. So they're, they're, I, I, we call it a bookend to our career so far, you know, start with The Hurting, it ends in tipping point. And, I mean, it's just, I've lost my thread. I, must well, I, 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 I was about to go back to to John's initial question, which is, you know, you're not tired of, of talking about it, um, and any grace you may show when you when you talk about it, and the fact that you're willing to talk about it. But I would say that it isn't sort of like the road to redemption or healing only come through talking about it. I mean, also, sure. also, I mean, ultimately, you you are you got to realise that we're all we're all servants. You know, we're all servants yes. to each other. We're all servants yes. to each other, and we're all you know we're all built pretty much the same way. So you hope through these things that you are at least reaching out to other people who've been in that situation. Yeah. And of course, through, through, through COVID, there's a lot of uh, uncanny amount of people who have been passing and there's an uncanny amount of people who've been grieving. You know? So, yeah. you know, share your, share your feelings, share your experience and, and try and let people know that there is, a, there is another side to come out. What I've always loved the most about your music, though, is your ability to turn pain into gold. And it's clear yep. that mm -hmm. you've spent a lot of time it's... in the rooms and done the therapy, but it seems like this album itself. <laughs> I listen to the song, Please Be Happy, and I feel like this this yeah, album is an act of therapy. Well, I mean, yeah, for music, for us, has always been therapy. I mean, you know, that's kind of how we've always looked at it. We don't go in and, and write superficial love songs often. There may be a couple, but um, it's just not, you know, if you're, if you're feeling happy or feeling deeply in love and joyous, it's, it's not a time for songwriting for us. I think that's just the way we're wired. You've got to um, suffer for your art. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. we're wired to, if we're in that moment of confusion or we're trying to look for an answer to something. Or make or sense an, of the world. Make sense of the world yeah. or an explanation for something. That's when we go to a guitar and to songwriting to try and work out what the answer is for us more than anything else. I think anyone who's been in the position of caring for someone they love as you were Roland will mm -hmm. find deep resonance with the lyrics in please be happy. It, it, I'm, I'm guessing that's one of the ones you began writing uh, before her passing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's very sad. You know, she was, uh, Caroline was an incredible feisty opinionated sexy woman who was, um, an amazing cook as well, but then you know yeah. we got to the got to the menopause and uh, uh, the wheels came off for her, and she became sort of uh, 
anxious, depressive, but, but worst of all, she lost any interest in food, which is, of course, dangerous, but made even more yeah. dangerous if you like to drink. And so the one thing that was consistent in our lives was alcohol. And so that just alcohol, psychoactive drugs, and then you're, you're, in, you're, in, a, you're in a mess. I got to say, it's an even greater credit yeah, to the... So, well, yeah, it's so even please be happy. To... And yeah. Please be happy as a song we were talking about, you know, which is literally about watching someone who can't get off the sofa, can't do anything. And it's pretty horrible. And at the same time, this record includes a track called My Demons. A few minutes yeah. after this heartbreaking track, we have this this number that sounds like, it sounds like a, a, an orgy with New Water and Depeche Mode having a baby yes. in the middle of it. I mean, yes. the, the, the ability to go from the heartbreak to just yeah. the rock power is what I think makes this album so truly you. It's, it reminds me a lot of, of uh, uh, Seeds of Love. There's so much diverse, sonic diversity in one well, direction. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think we're very aware. And, you know, going back to why the initial writing sessions didn't work out, we had lots of versions of the same thing, you know, the same attempt at writing some, um, you know, amorphous hit single, that, and who knows what that is anyway. And we didn't have an album. And once we concentrated on, you know, what makes an album, which we've always done, we've always made albums before singles are released. That's how we work. We've never made just singles, or at least, well, we did on one occasion and then failed abysmally. But once we realized we had to, we wanted to make this journey, and we're very conscious of the fact, you know, we're big album lovers. We're, we're children of the 70s, effectively, and we come from an era of Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and that kind of stuff. And uh, we, we're aware of the fact that an album needs to be a journey, and it needs to have its highs and lows, and it needs to have openness, breathing space, intensity, all those things which make an album a journey. And, and that's where all these tracks kind of come together. Um, My Demons, as you say, is a, a very, very intense track, but it comes out of a track about, you know, railing against the patriarchy and break the man. Yeah. It ends with the words love, 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 love. And the first lyric of, of My Demons is, I am the demolition man. Yeah. It's not a coincidence. You know, and then coming out of that into Rivers of Mercy, which really is a song about redemption more than anything else, that's where the journey comes in. Gentlemen, I know you've got a thousand of these things to do today, but thank you for all the great music and thank you for just putting out such a great fucking record. We needed it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you as well. Peace. Peace.